Good evening, and on behalf of the Royal Institute of British Architects and the Institute for Government, I'd like to welcome you to this Conservative Party Conference Fringe event. I hope you're all keeping safe and well. My name is Alan Valance, and I'm the Chief Executive at the RIBA. It's a slightly different conference than we're all used to this year, and it's our first ever virtual side event, but I can promise you that the debate will be as real as ever. This evening, I'm delighted to welcome Chair of the House Commons Environmental Audit Committee, Philip Dunn, MP, and professionals from across sectors to discuss how we can achieve net zero housing. The direction of travel signified by government in recent years to help the UK reach net zero is positive. However, there is a need for greater ambition if we are to significantly improve the performance and reduce the environmental impact of our housing stock. Buildings and construction are responsible for about 40% of global carbon emissions. So addressing the carbon impact from the built environment is a critical factor in helping tackle climate change overall. That's why in 2019, the RIBA joined the Global Declaration of an Environment and Climate Emergency to support the UK government's commitment to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. We know that sustainability has to be embedded into every single building from the outset, from strategy through to design, technical delivery and use. To help architects achieve this, we launched the RIBA's 2030 Climate Challenge last year, which calls on architects' practices to reach net zero whole life carbon for new and retrofitted buildings by 2030. We recognise that this is a big ask of our members, but it's absolutely necessary. So far, nearly 200 practices have signed up. This number continues to grow, but we know there's still a long way to go. Alongside the climate emergency, we're also tackling, tackling the global pandemic at the moment. The government has emphasised that a key component to the UK's economic recovery is the housing sector, and in particular, building with speed. The government must work with the wider construction sector to ensure any efforts to tackle the housing crisis don't undermine the ongoing efforts to tackle the climate emergency and reach net zero. What is required to get net zero housing done? How can we do it at speed without compromising design quality? And how can we ensure the economic recovery from coronavirus supports a transition to net zero? Our panel will be sharing their expertise, insights and opinions to help answer these questions amongst others. So to get us started, I'm delighted to hand over now to Jill Rutter, Senior Fellow at the Institute for Government, will be chairing our discussion tonight. Jill. Thank you, Alan, for that introduction. Uh, as Alan said, I'm Jill Rush. I'm a senior fellow here at the Institute for Government, and we're absolutely delighted to be partnering tonight with the Royal Institute of British Architects to bring you today's event. Um, how do we get net zero done? And as Alan said, we're going to focus on that, uh, that sector of housing, house building, construction, which actually is one of the hardest issues to crack because it means massive change and change that affects absolutely everybody. As Alan said, we're joined by a great panel tonight. Uh, kicking off, we have Philip Dunn, uh, Philip Dunn MP. Philip is chair of the Environmental Audit Committee, which takes a cross-cutting look at uh, environmental issues and is designed to be the Public Accounts Committee for the Environment. They've just launched an inquiry into the energy efficiency of the existing housing stock and are actually going to be following up to see whether anything's happened follow, following a report on that by the Business Energy and Industrial, Industrial Strategy Select Committee. Then we have Gary Clark. Gary is chair of the Reba Sustainable Futures Group, 
and Regional Leader of Science and Technology at HOK, Alex Willey, Director of Strategic Asset Management at Clarion Housing Group, and absolutely last but not least, my colleague Tom Sass, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government and co-author of our recent report on Net Zero. Please have a look at that. So I'm going to kick off with some questions to our panel, but I just wanted to make a couple of housekeeping part points before we really, really get going. First of all, you'll find a Q&A function that you can see on the screen to submit your questions throughout the event. I also hope that there's a fun capacity for you to upvote questions you like. I may have overpromised there, but anyway, that's certainly been a feature of Slido before. And uh, secondly, a request from our team. For those of you who've joined us in the tent, if you'd like to know more about Institute for Government, uh, our work in this area, indeed, on anything else we do to make government more effective, please click on the Get in Touch button to submit your details. So that's the housekeeping done. And I'm going to hand over, first of all, to my colleague, Tom Sass. Tom, uh, Alan kicked off with a bit of a sort of layout of what some of the problem was with net zero and housing. But maybe you'd like to go into a bit of greater depth about why it's worth everybody who's joined us tonight spending an hour of their time thinking about how do we get net zero done in housing? Thanks, Jill. Yeah, so we said in our report that the that housing is really the sort of red light flashing on the dashboard in the cockpit of government at the moment when it comes to net zero. So why is that? I mean, how, the housing sector is about a fifth of the UK's emissions and the Committee on Climate Change has said almost all of those emissions need to be eliminated for the UK to reach net zero. Um, but really progress has stalled. We haven't seen much reduction in emissions at all in the last five years. Uh, it's one of the most difficult and expensive delivery challenges to try and transfer the housing stock that we have to being net zero. And currently the government doesn't have much of a plan. So those are, those are the big challenges. If you look at the current position, you know, the UK has got 20, 29 million homes, most of which are pretty drafty and inefficient. About 85% of the UK's homes are heated by gas boilers. Indeed, when we were writing our report, our copy editor, a colleague of mine and Jill's was somewhat uh, surprised to learn that he would have to replace his gas boiler and a bit disappointed. Um, but change is going to need to happen both in terms of new build housing and existing stock, which we're going to get onto. I mean, put very simply, in terms of new build, we need to stop building homes that we're later going to have to retrofit. That's a very, very expensive way to do it. Existing stock is the really, really big one. We need to transfer to renewable heat and insulate those buildings. That's going to need to happen street by street, and it's going to be hundreds of billions of pounds of investment over decades. So there's there's quite different challenges, and those challenges are different, for, of course, for, for sort of owner-occupied buildings, rented buildings, and social housing. And in terms of what, what's happened so far, we had a bit of a false start on green housing in the sort of late noughties and the early 2010s. We had the Zero Carbon Homes Initiative and the Green Deal, which was the coalition's big energy efficiency scheme. Uh, Zero Carbon Homes was abandoned as priorities changed. The, uh, the Green Deal sort of flopped on contact with the reality. So we've had this false start. We're now looking at it again. And this time, uh, it really needs to happen. Tom. Coming back now, you've set up two problems, one with new build and one with the existing stock, both under the sort of general rubric of housing, but actually in many ways quite different problems. So I'm going to get our experts to pitch in on what they think might be able to happen. So Gary, 
let's start with new bill. The government has big ambitions to increase house building. So by 2050, there should be a lot of new houses. But as Tom set out, the worst of all worlds is we build future problems by uh, building energy inefficient housing that needs uh, needs retrofitting. So how do we actually up our game on new build? Yeah, hi, Jill. Uh, yeah, I think the first thing to say really is that it's uh, we can't really build any new uh, unsustainable buildings and really urging um, you know, government and, and all parties to really to look at sort of um, uh, the 2030 challenges, as Alan was mentioning. So that's our RBA guide. Uh, that so goes with our other guide, which is the RBA sustainable outcomes. And what we're trying to say there is focused on uh, operational energy and carbon. That's the whole uh, energy use of the building, plus the embodied carbon, which is actually how we build the buildings. So taken together, that's whole life. We then got to consider um, water use as well, and obviously the biodiversity uh, net gain. So that's really what we're saying is that that should be embedded into statutory regulation. And that's what, what we need really to kind of deliver and speed up this process. So that's the concise metrics. We need them embedded into a new sustainable design code, which is obviously another part of the policy. But crucially, and this is picking up sort of the point here, why have we not seen any big um, reductions in energy use? And the reason is it's follow through. So we can't we can't sort of just predict things. And then the current regulations are all about prediction, but don't really follow through and actually understand the actual performance in use of buildings. So the RBA and we're all calling for enforcing this delivery through building regulations. And that was very much part of our um, reaction to the, um, uh, the, the consultation earlier this year. And what we're asking there is in-use certification of the in-use performance of buildings. One example is Passivhouse. That's one system which actually delivers very amazing sort of results. Uh, this is almost near zero. And the, uh, the Sterling Prize award-winning uh, competition last year, uh, which was Goldsmith Street in Norwich, that has achieved almost net zero on site uh, at a really good budget. So really the message really is, is if we do have to build new, and I would urge a retrofit first policy, then it's really sort of doing that. It's aiming for that 2030 challenge. We've got to do it uh, within the next sort of five to 10 years. And we can't really deliver it uh, just by building new um, all electric suburbs. We've got to build uh, a walkable mixed use settlement which is actually located near to public transport. That is where we, we can sort of really affect change in terms of the new build. So obviously, uh, I think we are ready in terms of construction industry and really urging government to uh, be bold and confident and uh, really support us in that action. So Gary, why, do you, why are you um, so convinced that it takes regulation? Um, this government generally that, uh, that may not think regulation is the best way to do it. Why isn't it actually just a thing where the market will select you know energy efficient very low emission housing and we could just actually leave it to the market why do we need government to enforce this through building regulations yeah a couple of things uh, first one is it's the uh, it's the upfront capital cost so again you you've got to invest to save and so uh, that's the kind of the, the thing. So that's why we need to kind of change and create a level playing field. And the other one is really is, uh, unfortunately, this is some part of the construction sector will always deliver to the lowest common um, sort of regulation. And if that isn't plugged, then we really uh, won't deliver the the, the, the the changes we make. But I, I would say that on that one is the um, this follow through of actually sort of measuring things in use is absolutely critical. So there's many parts of the construction industry leading on this voluntarily, um, and obviously RB is one of those uh, people. But but really, without this, I, I think we're going to be wasting 10 years. And the next 10 years is absolutely critical, Jill. 
Oh, right, that's very interesting. And the government's talked about a future home standard. Does that uh, do the trick for you? Uh, not quite. I think it's it's welcome in terms of they mentioned a 75% reduction by 2025. Uh, it doesn't actually say what reduction that is. So we're hoping it's aligned with the 2030 challenge. It's all about operational energy use of buildings. And then it's got to be reinforced by building regulations. If that's what they mean, yeah, I'm welcome for that. Okay, so it's a start, but it's not getting us there completely. So that's the sort of vision, you know, much tougher regulation, give up on sort of voluntary codes and things like that to get us somewhere on new build. I'm going to come back to the question about who might pay for this in the future. Uh, I want to go to Alex next. Alex, uh, if you could explain to us very quickly what Clarion Group does and then tell us what you think it will take to make progress in the even harder nut to crack of the existing stock and potential retrofit, particularly in rented accommodation. So, Alex. Hi, hi, Jill. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the panel this evening. Uh, so, Clarion Housing Group, we are the largest housing association in the UK. We have over 125,000 homes across around 150 local authorities. So, we are very interested in this agenda. Um, the issues have been laid out clearly by, by um, fellow panellists. Climate change and the impact of this pandemic are likely to be the major challenges for our times. Um, but getting our existing homes to net zero offers a number of opportunities to help address these challenges. Um, retrofitting, it's, it's good for the planet. It's a cost-effective way of help contributing to our carbon reduction. Um, it's good for the economy. A recent study suggested that if a national retrofit program were to be rolled out, um, we could be seeing the likes of half a million jobs by 2024. And critically, especially as what's come under the spotlight lately, um, it's good for people's well-being, so it can improve their quality of life inside their homes. And, and lastly, it's sort of been ref referred to, but now really is the time. Um, saw recently that it's 1,500 weeks to 2050. And with the 29 million homes that Tom mentioned in the UK, many of which will require some, if not, you know, the absolute majority will require some form of intervention. We really do need to get going. For the social housing sector, uh, Savills recently estimated around 175,000 homes a year will need to be retrofitted. And that's at a cost of 4.8 billion um, every year. Uh, so whilst the announcement from MHCLG of the, the 3.8 billion for the social housing sector over 10 years is very welcome, um, we can see that the scale of the problem is, is huge. For Clarion ourselves, so around 30 to 40% of our homes are um, energy performance level D and below. And we have targets for that already issued around 2030 to improve those. But if we're talking about zero carbon, that's actually almost our entire stock that we need to address. We're already doing some work on this and generally housing associations are very experienced at delivering large scale investment programs to existing homes. Last year, Clarion invested £102 million in our existing homes in terms of um, large scale improvements. But specifically on this gender, so we have a strategy at Clarion to, uh, with a target to, uh, for all of our existing homes to meet SAP 72 by the year 2040. It's not zero carbon, uh, but it's the first step on, on what's a developing strategy because we need to look alongside this at not just how we're going to work towards 2040, but how we ensure that what we're doing this year, next year, the next five years is not going to require rectifying again before 2050. Um, we've, we've started to test some of this out. So we've carried out some deep retrofits ourselves with some of our homes in partnership with our residents. Really interesting results. One of the residents actually happier with the look and feel of the home, even more than the energy savings. Um, but we realise it's bigger than just 
the delivery, if you can imagine, that's bigger than just the delivery of the work, we do need to address the funding. So we're also the first UK housing association to adopt the certified sustainable housing label, issuing a sustainable bond earlier this year for £350 million. And we're part of a consortium who worked with the Green Finance Institute on a report setting out financing options for this very challenge. And I'll be, be referring to that later. So for us, uh, what, what we need to see in terms of the social housing sector and retrofitting existing, existing stocks, it's been said before, I'm afraid I'm going to say it again, we need a plan. We need a long-term detailed plan. This was actually echoed by the Climate Assembly held recently. Um, because as, as Tom, Tom referenced, these are major step changes with hugely complex processes end to end, not least for end users. So, as I say, we are making plans for our own stock, but we to ensure the right level of cost effectiveness, the right amount of impact, it's got to be set against the backdrop of national and local government plans. Secondly, we need certainty and plans for funding. And we know this is going to cost. Yes, upfront, it's going to cost, uh, but also in use. Um, so upfront, there's a variety of different um, impacts it's going to have on different people. There'll be people who are able to pay. Many of our tenants who won't be able to pay, there's got to be some recognition for that there's going to be a need for some upfront subsidy. And this isn't about endless pots of government grants, although that might be nice. Uh, it's not about that. It is about a long-term plan for sustainable funding models across the demographics. And as I say, in use, uh, all the indicators are that even if we retrofit to the highest standard, any residual energy use will be cost more per unit than it does at the moment with gas. Um, and so in that report, the Green Finance Institute report I mentioned, there are a number of recommendations um, for options to look at financing. Um, for the social housing sector, we're talking about potentially flexing the affordable rent model to include the total cost of living in that home. Um, and the, the third and, and sort of last request I'd have is, is that housing associations are also very well placed to not just create net zero homes, but net zero carbon communities. Um, and I think that's something with our local authority partners in particular, we could work towards. We, we own, you know, that we've got hundreds and thousands of residents who are going to need to charge their electric cars somewhere in the future. Um, we do an awful lot around waste reduction, biodiversity, and we work with people in the long term. I think it, it's clear that this this process, this agenda is going to need a huge amount of engagement with people. And it's something we've done for many years and, and hope to do for many years to come. And I think whether this, this approach, the uh, what we, we work on in the social housing sector could become a blueprint for, for the wider uh, demands of retrofit. In terms of large scale delivery, I think it definitely offers some opportunities, particularly with supply chains. And if there's certainty of funding around training and skills and, um, and delivery, much like there was under decent homes, which which resulted in cheaper kitchens and bathrooms for everybody. And, and as I say, we could certainly um, start to set the process for engaging with people throughout this, this highly dis likely to be highly disruptive process. But social housing is not representative of the whole country and particularly with energy use, uh, it's very different depending on who's living in the household. And we'll need different options for engagement, for funding, for delivery. And, and as previous schemes have shown, the likes of the Green Deal, uh, it's just not something that people are really fighting to get hold of yet. And so it will need other mechanisms, other levers. So social housing can certainly get the ball rolling and potentially accelerate some of the programmes but I don't think it could be a blueprint for the whole of the UK. And yeah, that's all very interesting. We're getting some questions coming in. I'm just going to have to go and try and recover my Slido scheme. But I wanted Philip to come in now. Philip, you're our politician on the panel. You've heard the sort of demands from... Good evening. You've heard some demands from 
the new build sector for tougher regulation to level the playing field. You've heard uh, uh, Alex set out the um, social rented sectors demand, if you like, or requirement for a long-term plan and secure funding. Uh, but I think one of the comments that we had in the Q&A was, will any of this attract enough political attention? Because uh, somebody was saying, I think it was anonymous, that housing's not very sexy and maybe this won't get the juices flowing in the same way as other big infrastructural tech projects might when we look at the spending review that we may be having this autumn and uh, and look forward to the government's net zero plan. So what do you think the appetite is in government for all of this? Sure. Well, thank you very much, Jill. And thank you to the Institute of Government for arranging this and to Reba for helping to bring it on. Um, I think it's a really important topic. And uh, just to try and reassure you on uh, government's commitment, I think we're at a, a, an almost unique sort of confluence of excitement, if I can put it that way. We've got... We've already heard a number of um, government projects referred to by others this evening. We've got the uh, energy white paper coming up. We've got the significant planning reforms in, in prospects with the white paper under consultation at the moment. We've got reforms to the future home standard to set, uh, as we heard earlier, uh, the, the, the right kind of um, uh, design and regulatory framework for new build. Um, and we've got, sort of underneath the infrastructure plan, a heat and buildings strategy due to emerge, uh, uh, some renewable energy strategies due to emerge on things like hydrogen. This is all happening at the same time. And it coincides with the government's clear commitment, evidenced by um, the first, being the first country in the world to legislate for net zero Britain. And uh, with a priority given by hosting the COP26 International UN Conference in Glasgow in November next year, of uh, a, a government priority at the very highest level. The Prime Minister is going to be hosting this event next year. He has got to make a success of it, and he's got to deliver global leadership from the UK on how we get there, the path to net zero. So all of this means that, from my perspective, in answer to your particular question, Jill, I think there is real uh, commitment across government to do what it takes to achieve the policy uh, levers to deliver a path to net zero. And as we heard um, from, I think it was Alan at the beginning, the, um, the element provided by home heating uh, is critical. It, it accounts for 30% of UK energy consumption, 20% of emissions. And as we heard from the panelists is one of the most difficult things to achieve. We have 29 million dwellings in the country today. The government has the ambition to add a further 300,000 a year, so a million over the next three and a bit years. Um, so the new homes, the future home standard for new build is one thing, but it's a small proportion of the homes. It's absolutely right, as was said earlier, that we can't be building uh, new homes with obsolescent, what will become obsolescent heating and energy systems, we have to make build them to the standards where they don't require retrofit. But of the 29 million homes that are already there, 19 million of them, so two thirds, do not meet the current energy performance certificate requirement of C, 
which is what the government is hoping to get all buildings to, all homes, by 2035. Now, that's only 15 years away. So if you divide 19 by 15, by my maths, that's over a million a year have got to be retrofitted. Now, the government has made a really bold initiative this summer as part of the Greening the Recovery Plan with the Green Homes Grant to seek to uh, provide funding for householders, two billion of funding, uh, to help to uh, move towards energy efficiency measures. But it's going to need to maintain a similar level of funding if, if it's to be uh, supported by uh, government money, and we'll probably come on to that, for the next 15 years plus. So what's required as the government sets out its nationally determined contribution, uh, which is its statement of what it's going to do to get to net zero for the COP26 conference, needs to lay out the carbon budget plans for each of the five-year carbon budgets uh, that are not yet um, uh, over. So that's the fourth, fifth, and then the sixth, which have yet to publish. Um, how Energy efficiency in homes is going to form a major plank in achieving those proposals. That's, uh, I think, uh, hopefully, that sort of plan will satisfy some of the uh, some of the sort of requirements from other people uh, that they've been putting out. I wanted to pick up. I'm going to pick up a couple of quite uh, detailed questions that we've had in on the live stream, and I want to widen it out. So, Gary, uh, this is one's for you, I think. David Dundas has asked, do you agree that new buildings must be fitted with green energy heating with heat pumps? Hydrogen heating produces NOx, so is not acceptable in the long term. Uh, if anyone else wants to come in on this sort of very difficult choice between heat pumps and NOx, they're uh, very welcome to. But, Gary, what do you think? Are you a heat pump man or are you a NOx man? Uh, Hydrogen man, not a Knox man. That's yeah. going the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, what do you think? And do you think the government should be doing What level do you think that decision should be made? Okay, so the, I think the answer is pretty straightforward. It is air source heat pumps. I think the hydrogen, yeah, obviously there's a there's a bit of work to do on that one, but um, the, the complexity of hydrogen is is uh, is pretty difficult. So go straight to technology that's been working. We've had them for 50 years if not more, and uh, the latest air source heat pumps are very efficient. Again, uh, in new build schemes, then there's an option to do ground source heat pumps. So if you connect it with the ground, it's more efficient. So you've got a, a coefficient of performance of up to about five or maybe eight times. So really go for that is the next option. And then, yeah, you can see where I live. I'm trying to get, I'm going to get rid of my boiler soon and I'm going to put an air source heat pump in. Okay, that's interesting because we've heard that the prime minister I think this was uh, written uh, in the Times a couple of weeks ago that the Prime Minister was a bit of a hydrogen fan. Um, does anyone else want to come in on the side of hydrogen being the right way to go? Philip, do you have any thoughts on hydrogen versus uh, heat pumps? Well, we, our committee did some work looking at hydrogen um, and the, uh, the opportunity really for hydrogen and, and home heating to inject hydrogen into the existing gas distribution network so that it increasingly becomes a, a more hydrogen-rich network as gas gets phased out. Um, uh, so that's really an interim measure for, for hydrogen um, uh, rather than replacing gas boilers with hydrogen boilers. 
in the short term. The cost no. of producing hydrogen remains currently energy intensive itself. And Alex, do you see heat pumps? Do you agree with David that uh, heat pumps are the way forward? Um, I think I'd probably agree with both panellists and sit on the fence, which isn't very helpful. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I think there's there's work to be done to understand um, hydrogen, um, as Philip has pointed out. Um, I think heat pumps, housing associations have got quite a lot of experience of this, of installing them and the, and the effects. Of them. And, and all I would say is that um, either option will require uh, engagement with people living in those homes. Um, the technological solution is is one thing and one answer to the problem, but either of them, you know, when I, even just my friends and my family, we think we're doing enough if you're just changing your thermostat or not boiling the full kettle full, you know, um, recycling. But this is huge. This is a very, very different way of living in your home. So I think either option is going to require engagement. Yeah, so if I just come in a little bit. Yes, I mean, I think it's um, the first thing thing is, is it's not silver bullet. There's not one thing that's going to achieve everything. Um, so I think it's to avoid that. And you've got to have it in a, 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 a raft of measures. So really what we're talking about is uh, you've got to have uh, increased insulation. You've got to have your draft proofing. You've got to have double glazing. And then that sort of reduces the amount of load that you need, which then you get into the zone of the air source heat pump. Picking up sort of uh, the point of uh, usability, it's not very good uh, for really hot water. So you've got to change the way that we do it. And you'll probably need, um, going back to, um, you know, it's a, a thermostatic um, uh, water tank, hot water tank. It's pre all pressurized now, but you'll need that for your hot water. So I think it's it's a combination of measures. But, you know, again, the, uh, the a lot of this is kind of developed. And um, and when you when you plug this into a pacifist level uh, envelope, which is really energy efficient, then, you know, at one level, you don't really need much heating at all. And Gary, is that, does that work equally well for the other sort of climate change requirement, which is adaptation, particularly if we have future summer heat waves? There's been a bit of concern that some of the measures on energy efficiency and, you know, very sealed buildings actually made places intolerably hot in the summer and caused people to switch on the air conditioning, which obviously is very counterproductive. Move. Yes. Yes. Sorry, was that to me, Jill? Sorry. Yes, that's to you. Oh, yeah. That's okay. you as our as our architect for all yeah, the yeah, five sure. different yeah, no problem. So yeah, the uh, this is where it's a passive first approach. So what we mean by that is the envelope of the building has got to be sort of uh, part of the equation. You can't just put in sort of technology willy nilly. So uh, and it really is the overheating is very much um, a part of this as well. And what we're talking about is going back to learn. I mean, we're going to have a climate. Well, London's going to have a climate of Marseille. So you've got to adapt and, and actually adapt our buildings to that climate in the future. Um, so I think the air source heat pump is is actually still relevant for that. But we've got to think about sort of shading. You've got to think about um, understanding how natural ventilation works uh, and then just live, you know, adapting how we're going to live in, in the future. So uh, but the other thing as well is the air source heat pump could be a cooling device as well. But I wouldn't really I'm not really one for uh, putting sort of um, air conditioning in homes. I think we can still uh, adapt. We've got a very temperate climate. Uh, peaks. We shouldn't also live in sealed buildings with that but the passive ice approach just about sealed buildings is about um making the, making it right you can in winter you obviously shut down but you're allowing the building to breathe and uh, open up um uh, during the uh, mid-season and, and the, the nice weather basically okay we've got a couple of questions from rachel nunn who's actually asking quite a lot of questions so i'm going to pick two of these rachel um 
uh, and I'm going to merge two, which is sort of about how we build buildings. Um, Gary, you were mentioning modern, uh, you were mentioning the need to think not just about the sort of carbon in use, but also the embodied carbon that we had as we build. And Rachel's got a couple of questions. One about how can we ensure products like geopolymers get to market more quickly, replacing concrete, and that structural engineers don't over-engineer, e.g. with steel and concrete. I don't know whether that's an engineer versus architect thing uh, okay. that you might have views on. And the second question that she's asking is about um, dealing with construction waste and how far away we are from a circular economy in yeah. buildings so that waste, uh, construction waste is recycled. Anyone okay. else who's got views on that is welcome to come in, but I'm going to fire those at Gary first. Okay, and I'll so, pick up some more general questions. Okay, so quite a few points there. I think that we're, um, uh, I think the issue is, is the, we've been trying to design and build and deliver low energy buildings for a very long time. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the process has been in place, but we haven't really delivered, I think, consistently. And it shows how difficult it is. And, a bit, and it's a follow through is really important. That's why we've got to certify and we've got to have independent certification of buildings in use. And I think if Grenfell teaches everything, we've got to be independent. We've got to make sure that follow through. So whatever the difficulty is trying to achieve the energy, uh, I think the embodied carbon is actually more difficult at one level because, uh, again, it's it's following the entire chain from uh, winning the material right the way through to construction. And uh, and then that is going to be a tricky one. So, but to answer your questions on that, um, I think there's promising thing in terms of diverting um, a waste to landfill. I think the contraction, uh, construction industry has done very well. We're up in, I mean, I think that um, I regularly have uh, uh, projects that over 90% is diverted. But again, it's um, what happens. Is it reused? Is it recycled? That's the next thing that we need to do. Um, then going on to sort of polymers and different types of concrete, um, I think that's it. That that is one one of the biggest elements is concrete in the world. That's I think the single largest piece of construction uh, building element mm -hmm. is, is is about the same as flights. It's about ten percent of global emissions. Mm -hmm. um, so there's ways around this, but really what it comes down to is and the structure engineer, um, there's a factor four that's always added on. Uh, we've got to try and get and work with the engineers to try and get um, more simple solutions. Um, and it's really, really looking at use of timber, CLT and uh, glue lamb and so forth again. Okay, we've got some suggestion here about using rammed earth or bamboo in larger cities. Would that work in England? Um, I, well, I'm going to bring in Alex and Philip, who yeah. also come in on this, but they may not have views yeah. on rammed earth and bamboo. <laughs> I, yeah. I think there's a great tradition of um, of earth walls uh, in England and Scotland. Uh, there's really old ones, uh, Cobb and uh, down in sort of uh, Devon and Exeter and so forth. Cornwall, I, I think we, we can live it. I think in terms of uh, in inner city with um, the, the speed of construction, I think it's going to be difficult. Um, but I think there's um, I think the principle really is it's local, uh, low embodied materials as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the lighter materials, you can take those from further away. So that principle is is what you're trying to aim for. Bamboo, rapid renewables, absolutely critical as part of our thing. So we can take those from from uh, far away. But yeah, we need to use more low body materials. Alex and Philip. Alex. So I just wanted to come in on the circular economy piece because um, we've been doing quite a lot of learning about this lately. And, and the key principle has to be that it's considered throughout the process of new or existing. So design, procurement, delivery. But actually, you know, as, as you mentioned previously, um, 
it, it can be very technical, this agenda. And circular economy, we're finding, can actually offer more interest and aspiration and engagement with residents than, than other aspects. So we've had um, residents asking if we can reuse trees from sites within play equipment on their on their estate. So uh, very localised, but really aspirational and really gets them engaged. And, and all the way up to um, in South London on one of our regeneration projects, potentially working with a local art college to use some of the materials. So th there's definitely a technical um, intervention that's needed in terms of circular economy, but I think it really represents one of those nuggets of this agenda that could really grab people's attention. Philip, do you want to come in? We've also got another couple of questions that are going to direct to you about why is the government being yeah, sort of so slow to regulate. Philip, okay. I will Just also... before I do, I, I don't want to rain on the parade. Because, you hear me? Yes. Yeah, just about. Architects are more interested in designing new than redesigning the old. And, uh, and without being rude to our host, um, much the biggest challenge, uh, as was rightly said by Gary, is insulating, retrofitting, retrofitting old buildings to insulate them properly. You cannot install a heat pump um, and certainly you can't take advantage of the Green Homes Grant now available uh, to install a heat pump unless you've already insulated your home to a suitable standard. And that requires essentially um, all external walls, including the ceilings and the floors, being insulated. And that's a large amount of material. And a question that I'd like to put to the other panelists, if I may, is that one of the most sustainable insulation materials and there is there are products available for use in insulation using uh, using wool, uh, which is currently uh, more or less free off the backs of the sheep because there is currently no market um, for uh, for wool, and farmers are having to mulch it and plow it into the land because they can't sell it. Um, so, could someone give me a reason why there's been so little take up of wool-based insulation? products are out there. I know they're more, they're historically more expensive, but they have better flake, non-flammability, better insulation qualities by and large than man-made products. Yeah, Gary, so, yeah. thanks for coming in on that. Question. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's um, yeah, it's a real, a real interest of mine, cheap tool. So uh, the, um, I think the issue is, it's, it's, it's always expensive. So whenever I've tried to specify it, um, it's, it's just too expensive, and it goes through, you know, not many suppliers and. Um, and so I think this is where the industry has been slow take up and, uh, and, and but it's there and it's absolutely, you're absolutely right. It should be taken up. So, but I think that for my colleagues and, and peers, uh, when we're specifying things, um, if there isn't um, that kind of supply chain and we need all the kind of, sort of certifications of materials, it's very difficult for us to, um, to, to you know, to take that leap. Um, but in terms of uh, some of the more experimental houses, this is going to deep green buildings. Yeah, you're absolutely right. There's lots of use of this. And it's the same for rammed earth as well. Um, so, yeah, I really encourage um, somehow. But again, this is the question of actually what level of kind of sort of um, state intervention do you do? Um, I'm relying on sort of the market to really say, seize that opportunity. So I would tend to agree. But coming back to your point in terms of architects, new build, um, absolutely consistently, um, our kind of president and, um, and Alan, and myself, we, we, there's a campaign which is on board, which is we're, we're saying it's a retrofit first policy. So what we're saying every time we're presenting to architects, we're saying um, the, the first point should be to a client professionally is to say, do you need a new building? 
you know, can you actually work and reimagine the building you've got first? So that is the policy. I mean, that's really what we're saying in terms of our members. All right. OK. And uh, sorry, it's a bit stereotyping. I asked Gary to comment on new build and Alex to talk about existing stock in the things. It wasn't because Gary said I only want to talk about new build. Um, Tom, you wanted to come in and then I'm going to move on to some of the other questions. Tom. I just wanted to quickly connect this back up to the, the policy question we were talking about. So we mentioned the future home standard earlier on. And I think one of the Committee on Climate Change's criticisms of that in the kind of consultation period has been that it doesn't include building materials nearly as strongly as it as it should, or as, at least as they think it should. And I think that's probably one of the lessons of the sort of zero carbon homes fiasco is that actually if you want companies, uh, building companies to invest in, in, in developing these materials, you need to give them that sort of long term certainty. But I think a lot of those companies that did invest were then felt a little bit burned when that standard was was removed before it was even implemented and they couldn't use some of the things that they'd developed. So I think, you know, if we look at the future future home standard, it's clear that you, you need to give some pretty good long-term signals if you want these sort of materials to be developed. Yeah. That's very interesting. Actually, we've got a question on the future home standard from Michael Lennon. Michael's asked whether it's sensible, um, given the given some of the question marks about hydrogen, that the future home standard proposes that from 2025, new homes will not be connected to the gas grid. Does anyone want to comment on, on whether that makes sense or not? Gary? Well, I'm quite happy to jump in, but feel free to uh, other uh, people to stop me as well. Um, yeah, no, I think that um, we, we're just gearing up the um, to give a very uh, clear reaction to the white paper. So that's going to come out quite soon from the RBA. Uh, mm. I think the main thing to say is really is... Um, um, you know, I, I think that the hydrogen, if you go into it, the um, it's really looking at 10% maximum injection of mm -hmm. hydrogen. There's currently a 5% um, biogas in there just now as well. Um, and where's the theoretical maximum of this before it becomes kind of dangerous? Um, I look back at some of the old um, Victorian systems, and um, I believe, this is correct me if I'm wrong, but coal gas actually had 60% hydrogen content. Uh, but that was actually sort of balanced by the amount of carbon dioxide in the system as well. So, so I think for, for me, the, the hydrogen is there um, to then deal with the existing building stock. And I think we've got to think about this. And this is, this, I think, coming back to Tom's point, mm. this is a roadmap. We've got to look at this in a 30-year cycle. Mm. And that's where we need government to really set that kind of sort of agenda. Um, so what we do is the existing people uh, with new boilers, you know, whoever's bought one recently, mm. surely they should be allowed to kind of continue with that boiler a little bit longer and then obviously inject as much hydrogen as we can and that sort of keep that going. But but we can't, We really, I, I don't think it's an answer. I think we've got to go straight and I'm quite supportive of government to go to a non-fossil fuel uh, for, for new buildings. So just a question on that. I mean, in our recent report on net zero, we suggested that, yeah, we talked, I think we weren't allowed to use the word roadmap, but we talked about the need for a plan by sector that would set things out. But we were also questioning whether we had a sort of complete delivery architecture and whether we needed something to sit between government departments and either big social landlords or individual um, or house builders and things like that, sort of fill in some gaps. Do you think there's any bit of architecture missing here on uh, delivery of net zero, particularly for existing stock? Do we need anyone sitting in between or do we just need a plan that both sides can agree on? Alex, what's your view? 
Um, I think there's been some recognition of this already, the Social Housing Decarbonisation Fund, um, starting to look at uh, innovation, uh, innovation in the sector, providing funding for that. Um, the difficulty is what, what would that third party look like and, and who would be represented on it? Um, I think there are an awful lot of groups out there trying to do that already, um, whether it's the UK Green Building Council and mm -hmm. um, um, all sorts of organisations that bring that together. Um, but uh, I think, I do feel that if there could be just closer links between um, social housing organisations mm -hmm. and government, that might be good enough to get the, get the ball rolling and get things moving because there's a huge amount of learning coming out of the sector that could then link into and accelerate these programs. Um, it's difficult with the, the zero carbon hub um, that was, there was previously, you know, that's a, that's a one model that, um, that has existed in the past, but um, I think, I think it could work and it could be beneficial, but we'd need to be really clear about who was on that, what its function was and make sure it wasn't just something stopping the process and slowing it down. Gary, what do you think? I think Philip, Put your hand up first, so mm -hmm. I'll defer to my... All right, okay. Philip, yeah. <laughs> sorry. Well, very, very briefly, thank you. We have a mechanism to encourage stakeholder behaviour to change, and that is the Energy Performance Certification Regime. It was introduced that any house or home, any home being sold or rented um, uh, from... Uh, it was introduced progressively over the last two years, uh, and it's now enforced across all homes uh, in may also include Wales, I'm not so sure about that, um, has to achieve an EPC rating of E, or else the transaction cannot happen. Uh, mm. And that led to an enormous investment over the previous the three to four years in retrofitting existing homes to meet that standard. It was required for anybody who wanted to sell their home, any landlord wanting to rent their home, including social housing landlords, and that has been affected. So the current plan is to upgrade from an E to a C as the minimum standard by 2035. That will require a very significant investment. And the exemptions you know, are relatively limited. There are a few exemptions for listed buildings. If people, if the disruption um, uh, to a tenant is such that the tenant is not prepared to move out while the work is done. Uh, but I think that mechanism already exists, Jill. Okay, that's very, that's very interesting. Um... I just wanted to move on. We've got a question. I think it's again from Rachel. Uh, thanks, Rachel, uh, who's asked a sort of wider point about um, how this links to planning. And she's asking whether housing can be designed specifically to allow people to work from home and reduce travel emissions. And I think Gary was mentioning this at the start. I just wondered how people saw the move to sort of zero carbon housing fitting with the government's big building agenda to want to sort of boost but planning reform more generally Philip do you think that the government's got a sort of joined up view between uh, sorry Jill I didn't realise that was addressed to me initially uh, well, as I said in, in my opening remarks, I think there is uh, this unusual confluence of events right now, which gives the government the opportunity to join up all these things. Whether it takes it is another matter, of course. I hope it does. Uh, I think we've got a, a clear determination to, uh, on the new build side, to build large volume of, housing, of homes uh, and 
still then for the right sort of standard, as will come out in the future, I understand it. Um, and uh, I think that it's much more difficult to see that happening on the retrofit side because existing homes are owned by you know, a very large proportion of the public uh, and a lot of institutions like uh, social housing landlords. Um, and it's, it is, uh, it, it will be, we will require some behavioral uh, levers. Now, I've mentioned the energy performance certificates as one of those, but I think there also need, that's more of a stick than a carrot. We need some carrots here to encourage people to commit to the significant expenditure that we're talking about. You know, it currently costs, and correct me if I'm wrong, Gary, between two and three times the cost of a domestic oil boiler or a gas boiler uh, to introduce a heat pump, depending on what kind of system you use. And the heat pump, as I've already said, you can't install until you've insulated the house properly. And that can be a similar amount of, of money. So we're talking you know, a large reinvestment in your own home. That's going to require some stimulus. I want to come on to um, who's going to pay, but I just got a question. I want to come back to Philip on uh, from Anonymous again. Um, built environment sits across so many government departments. What does this mean for delivery? I just wondered if any of you'd like to comment uh, on whether this is a real problem that uh, we have energy efficiency sitting in the business department, we have new bills sitting in Ministry of Housing, Structure and Local Government. Um, you know, is that we obviously have fiscal incentives in the Treasury? Is that a real barrier to delivery, Alex? Well, I, I think, as you said, uh, Jill, in, in introducing the, my committee, uh, the environment is no respect, respecter of administrative boundaries or government departments. It covers everything. And the, the big change that's happened uh, under this government is the emphasis being given by the minister to try to pull government departments together. So he has set up this new commit, cabinet committee, which he is chairing and has had a meeting, um, despite everything else that's going on, uh, to start uh, this agenda. Uh, and there is the opportunity to bring this all together. And I, I come back to COP26. There is a huge pressure on government to deliver, and that hopefully will encourage departments to work more closely together. I mean, one of the notable absentees from that committee, though, is the uh, Minister for Housing, Communities and Local Government, who's on the Operations Committee, chaired by Alex Sharma, but doesn't sit on the uh, the Strategy Committee. Isn't that a big omission, given what we've all been saying about how important housing is to cracking climate change? Yes. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> Alex, you want to come in on the... Uh, I yes. said yes. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Alex. Yes, yeah, so that, that was going to be one of my points is the role of that um, government department is going to be critical um, in this very much so. But just from, from our experience, to go back to the planning point as well, um, the importance for planning on existing buildings mustn't be overlooked. I think planning is often focused and planning reform is often focused on enabling new build. Um, but we've had many experiences of energy efficiency improvements being refused on planning grounds, not in conservation areas. So we're not talking about sort of sensitive areas. Um, so there definitely needs to be a joint up approach for existing stock as well as new and and also you know we also work with very closely with the department for work and pensions when we're talking about financing and, and potentially really this is going to require overhauling of a number of different mechanisms and policy situations um, it is going to require a, a 
real leadership and drive on the importance of it and prioritization of it in some departments that will have many, many other priorities fighting for space. Gary and Tom. Yeah, so just um, I'm going to pick up so a couple of points here, but the um, I remember, you know, this is maybe about 20 years ago, the, the, the theme of the um, siloed and fragmented um, setup of government uh, dealing with sustainability has been around for, for many years. Uh, I think there was a suggestion to create a new uh, department for that, um, uh, but yet they never could control all the departments. So, so we're back to now. Uh, we, we really are running out of time. Um, so I think the, the question really comes down to um, if it's if Boris is and uh, there's a cabinet office that's doing this, then then you know more power to the elbow there because we need definitive decisions. But the I, I think that in terms of actually the way we've reacted to the white paper plus the building regulations, you've got to connect these things up. If you don't connect them up, then we're going to build again this another rush to net zero and uh, we will miss the boat and they won't deliver. We must deliver this time. Hence the idea of doing this in-use certification method. I'd just like to pick up and remind them um, uh, it's um, a policy or a, a method called Neighbours uh, certification uh, policy from Australia. It was voluntary. Um, the leading developers in Australia uh, started that off. It then became a, uh, a, a statutory obligation in, in one province, and then it's now nationwide in terms of Australia. That has delivered uh, about 70% reduction in energy use in commercial office buildings in Australia. And uh, we've got to do the same here. Uh, the the build, Better Building Performance um, uh, sort of group are actually developing a design for performance tool. That is one of the mechanisms, and this is the follow through. It doesn't cost lots of extra money, but it's actually doing things well. So we've got to stop this idea of trying to think of a technology solution. It's also a process solution as well. Tom, do you want to say anything? That's very interesting. Just wanted to come in quickly, Jill, on, on your question about departmental responsibility. So clearly existing stock is uh, the sort of policy responsibility sits with Bayes, but many of the levers for actually achieving it with the housing department or, or indeed other um, public bodies. So I think it's one of those where, you know, Bayes needs to be able to kind of influence across other departments. One of the other models that we looked at was the Office for Low Emissions Vehicles, which is a joint Bayes and DFT initiative, which works quite successfully at crossing that departmental boundary. I mean, the other big problem that you have in housing is just the constant merry-go-round of housing ministers. At the last count, we had 10 in the last 10 years, uh, which really gives them very little time to get to grips with this. So if, if that was not seen as a stepping stone, that would certainly be helpful in this. That's, uh, uh, that's an interesting comments. There's a great graph in our report of the number of housing ministers that we've had. I wanted to come as we're sort of moving towards the end for a question from Alice Penny. Uh, it's picking up a point Alex made about engagement and the need to engage citizens. So I want to link that as well to some of this issue about who pays. We've heard quite big sums of money needed. Uh, we've talked a bit about new builds. Some may be reflected in the sort of price, but then you've got lower running costs long term. But some owner occupiers, you're going to be asking to front up some cash. That's what the Green Deal tried to solve. Um, we've got the problem of funding for poorer tenants and where landlords may not be willing to make the investment, things like that. Just interested in, uh, Alex, maybe come to you first, this issue of how do we get people on board with this? And, and what's a fair way of thinking through the cost of this massive change? Who should pay? The Treasury's doing its review of net zero. It's basically starting to look at the question of who pays for the big transition. What's your thinking on that? 
Um, so I think to take the first point on, on engagement, we, we did a study a few years ago with over 150 homes with different interventions and, and tested and, and monitored how we interact with people and the impact of that. Um, and I think one of the first things to point out is using existing touch points to use the buzzword just can't be underestimated um, with, as part of this process. So people who are already engaging with people um, with householders, whether it's to do with home improvements or not, um, is, is an opportunity for a, for a route in. Um, and also not underestimating that people will be motivated by different things. I think one of the um, sort of uh, fallbacks of the, the Green Deal was an assumption that people had to see a payback from their investment. They had to be able to see that demonstrated. Actually, people will see different value in, in taking these steps. Um, I know for a number of our residents, it's actually just about being able to afford to heat their home to an adequate level. Um, so there will be different drivers. It's, it mustn't be assumed that it has to be about payback. That's not, that won't be the motivation for everybody. Um, but the flip side of that is engaging enough that people then don't uh, potentially use any of these savings um, on additional appliances, additional electricity use. Another thing we found was people were like, great, I can afford my heating. Now I'm going to get all sorts of electric appliances I can also, mm. also use. So I think there's, um, you know, in terms of energy um, output, it's important to, to engage throughout the process. Um, with the funding, um, as I say, the, the report uh, with the Green Finance mm. Institute is called Financing Energy Efficient mm. Buildings, the Path to Retrofit at Scale, has a whole suite of suggestions on this topic for all different types of um, demographic and tenure. Um, and I think at a high level, yes, there has to be recognition that there will be some sectors that will require subsidy, particularly to protect vulnerable people and fuel, fuel poor people. Um, but there are levers, and many of them have been looked at before, um, there are levers for um, longer term finance models for this sort of solution. Um, and as I say, and actually similarly, it was Australia have also implemented this as an approach in terms of looking at the total cost of living in a home. So actually, there's examples in Australia where people advertise homes now based on how much it costs to live in them in total, including the energy bills, not just the rent. If we were to start looking at that in the social housing sector, for example, we were able to flex those rents, it would make it more equitable. We would be able to charge higher rents so that two people living, one living in an EPC rated B home, one living in an EPC rated E home, they'd be paying the same amount because they'd be reflected within their rent. So there's a whole sort of myriad. I'm sure people on the panel have lots of other suggestions on, on the yeah. financing solutions. But um, but yeah, for me, engagement, don't make any assumptions um, about the people you're engaging with and, um, and funding. Think about um, the, the end user and what they're going to be able to afford to pay. Tom, any thoughts on consent and paying for all of this? Yeah, well, I think it, this is a really big challenge where you know there's a risk of actually losing support of people if we don't think carefully enough about how to to manage the costs of this and distribute them fairly and support people who are who are sort of low income i think you're already starting to see that with some sort of opposition from unions and groups like that to some of the kind of expensive um, forecasts of costs for doing this just a couple of thoughts so um i think it was really interesting alex mentioned the, the green finance initiative work and they looked at a couple of models for doing this it could be another area of this government looking to australia for the policy solutions because they've got to pay if you save uh model which kind of is a bit like the green deal but actually worked because they they sort of um you know worked out the the, the levels in the in the right way i think the other thing just looking at the different groups here is you know at the moment landlords have little incentive to invest where the benefits are going to be reached by tenants so you need a way to try and manage that i think a lot of owner occupiers 
um, you know, don't necessarily see the benefit in their property price of one of some of these investments. So look to more cosmetic improvements. So we, we've heard about people uh, just investing in granite sur work surfaces and things like that. So I think there's a question of how you how you get the incentives right for these different groups. Getting the incentives right. Uh, just Gary and Philip, maybe you could say we're talking all about the green recovery. So where does this fit in the green recovery? Gary, and then final words, Philip. Okay, so just be very brief, uh, coming back to the green recovery. New build in terms of um, uh, the best uh, examples, Goldsmith Street, again, coming in Norwich, it's £180 a square foot. That was a cost of new build that achieved um, an EPC of A. And, and actually, we've got to move on from EPCs. It's decks we need. Okay, so EPC is a just prediction. Um, that lifted families, uh, 100 families out of fuel poverty. I mean, the energy bills are, we're talking uh, less than £100 a year. I mean, this, this is serious stuff here. So that's new build. Retrofit, um, I'm part of you know, the RBA and uh, working with lots of other people. Um, we're looking at this kind of retrofit. So there's a, a body has been working hard in the background. They'll be coming through with their recommendations. But I think um, Alex kind of really highlighted it. It's, we've got to think of the long term. We can't think of this being trying to be paid back in 10 years when you're going to sell your house. Long term infrastructure. And it's about building mortgage. It's about building green mortgage rather than a personal mortgage. So you invest on the longer term. And uh, in terms of workshops have been on this, the pension funds, all our pension funds are really looking for secure long-term infrastructure projects. You bundle massive levels of retrofit um, and then nobody needs to be greedy. It's a, a very sort of sensible interest rates, not like the old green deal, it's 6.7%. <laughs> uh, that is the answer. That is really how we can change uh, things. And, but we need a little bit of help from government in mm. terms of that idea. Mm. It's moving to a building mortgage and it's got to be sort of enforced. It can't be left just to the vagaries of the market, unfortunately. But final word, prospects for a, oh, very, for very a big Gary, plan? There's a wall of private finance. Gary is spot on. There's a wall of, of private finance looking to invest in green uh, instruments. And, and there is a big opportunity here. The Green Homes Grant shows the government's willing to make some uh, pump priming moves. They've got to, it's got to last for longer. Um, but we've just seen in Germany uh, a, a, a German guilt for 5 billion euros was five times oversubscribed with private investors wanting to put money to work. That's where the opportunity lies. Green finance is part of the future. That's a brilliant point to end. I'm going to thank all our panelists. So we've had great ideas from Germany, great ideas Later. from great ideas from Australia, which is always a big selling point of some uh, ideas, as Tom said. And I think a general sort of appeal to the government that actually they have relatively little time, but need to think long term, and they can really crack this issue. Thanks very much to all of you for posting so many questions. Sorry we didn't get to all of them. Many apologies if we didn't get to yours. I hope we tried to cover most of the themes you were interested in. And please join me in virtually thanking all our fantastic panellists. And thank you very much as well to the Royal Institution British Art Architects for partnering with us. And please do read our Net Zero report. Thank you very much indeed. And good night. Thank